We'll be in Acts chapter 4, starting in verse 32. I had forgotten that this is actually the text I preached in my first ever Sunday morning sermon in the church I was serving at in college. And the pastor was going through Acts, and he said, you can take this one. And we'll see why <laughs> later. That's kind of funny. First ever Sunday morning sermon. During those years, maybe even before then, I think I figured out that I was not called to go into any type of career that had anything to do with physics or engineering or anything like that. I remember, I think it was in high school, we did one of those things, maybe you've done something similar, the toothpick tower challenge, where you were given a certain number of toothpicks and then an adhesive, and your goal, the challenge, was to see how high you could build it using the adhesive given. And sometimes that's done with marshmallows. I think we had Elmer's glue. I can't remember. I, I just remember bringing mine in and then looking at all the others and going, oh, that's what I was supposed to do. Uh, that's what that's supposed to look like. I didn't have the, <laughs> the innate sense of this is how to, to build up a structure like this. And of course, the whole reason it's a challenge is because of the simple physics of it. The, the more you add on, uh, the more complexity you bring to a structure, the more difficult it becomes to hold it all together. And you have to think wisely about how you're going to construct this thing so the foundation is solid so it can build and grow. That's true in building and engineering. It's also true in social structures, in communities, and in groups. The more you add on to a group, the more the group grows, uh, the more complexity that comes, and the stronger the foundation has to be to hold it all together. When a group is growing, there will be increasing vulnerabilities that threaten the integrity of the group. That's true in the church. And the church in Acts is beginning to experience this. By now, there are at least 5,000 men, so more than that, including women and children. The group is growing. The church is expanding rapidly. But as it expands, there is a danger of the group not holding together. Something has to hold the church together. As a community, they are faced with the challenges of material need, so they're going to have to address that. Then also faced with the challenge of sin and spiritual attack in the church, and that will be addressed as well. So as we look at the text this morning, we'll ask a very simple question of what holds the growing church together? As it's growing, what is going to hold it together? What will keep the church united and what will preserve the integrity of the church? How will it retain its character and its witness in the midst of attack and just simple physical needs? What holds the growing church together? It's going to take more than Elmer's glue, right? Something, someone has to hold the church together. We'll answer that question in two steps, two answers to that question. The first answer to that question of what holds the growing church together is found in verses 32 through 37. In these verses, we see that the church is unified in Christ-centered sacrifice. 
How's the church remain together? How does it hold together? Well, it's unified. It's held together. The, the church is of one heart and mind, and they're unified in Christ-centered sacrifice. There is this awesome sacrificial unity in the church. And the foundation of that unity is the gospel of Jesus. The church is unified in Christ-centered sacrifice. Look at verse 32. Four, chapter 4, verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet and was distributed to each as any had need. We'll stop there. Luke says that the full number, and he uses that word full kind of to underline the growing nature of the church. The full number of those who believed, all of them, they were of one heart and one soul. They were united together. We talked about this a few months ago in the First Corinthians series, how important unity is as a church. That in any group of body, or any group, any social group, if you have people going off in different directions, doing different things, whether it be a sports team or uh, your office at work, if you have a whole bunch of people not on the same page, the whole organization will fall. The church is the same way. If the church is going to thrive, it must be united. So it can cannot be consumed with infighting or bitterness or frustration and anger at one another. The church has to learn how to get along, to forgive, and to be united in its purpose, or else it will tear itself apart. That's what we see here in the early church. They were united together in their purpose of worshiping Christ and serving one another. And how did that unity express itself here, as Luke records? This unity expressed itself in how they viewed their resources. Says, no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. They had a philosophy of what's mine is yours. The Mikasa Sukasa. All I have doesn't just belong to me, but is to be shared with others. It's important to note here that. Luke is somewhat speaking hyperbolically, a little bit exaggerated when he says they had everything in common because it wasn't as if they all put all of their resources together and pulled it together and then divvied it up. They didn't share family members as much as we might want to sometimes. They weren't able to put their kids in the middle and say, okay, I have no responsibility anymore. It's all it's the community as kids. Well, no, they still had their own kids. They didn't, you know, again, trade family parties or anything like that. They didn't share everything. They still had things that were of their own, but the important thing was how they viewed their resources. They viewed their wealth and resources not only belonging to them, but as a tool for the greater good of the community. When you open up your bank account, or if you look at your checkbook, if you still have one of those, or look at your Mint app, or however you look at your finances, there's going to be something deceptive there. Because when I look at my bank account and see how much are, is or is not in it, at the top of that, it'll say my name. And that's misleading. Because it'll cause me to think that everything that falls under that is all for me. 
And we will think that all that we have and all of our wealth and all of our resources, it falls under our name, so it's all for us. And that is an unbiblical, sub-Christian view of wealth. We know as Christians that first, all that we have is the Lord's. He has given it to us on loan to steward it and use it as we will, hopefully, submitted to him. And then we know as Christians that what we have, it's not just for us, but all of our wealth, all of our resources, our, our money, our time, those are tools given to us to serve others. It doesn't just belong to us. It is something on loan that we may serve others as well. So your home, and for those of you who have not yet bought a home, for those of you who are working on your home, you have to think differently as a Christian about your home because your home is not just your safe sanctuary to keep for yourself. Your home is a tool for ministry. Your kitchen is not just your kitchen. That is a tool for ministry. Your car is not just a luxury for you. That is a tool to serve others. Not just to transport you around, but to meet the needs of others. The church understood this. The church in Acts... They didn't view what they had as only their own. But they knew it was also for the use of others as needs arose. Where did they develop this ethic? How did they develop this ethic of sacrificial generosity with all that they had? Verse 33, I think, shows us how this generosity was birthed in the church. It says, with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace was upon them all. This is what empowered their sacrificial attitude. They preached Christ. They powerfully spoke of the resurrection. They taught the gospel and that fueled generosity. So, you should all know by now, we are in the midst of a capital campaign of raising funds to finish our basement, to extend the parking lot, and hopefully in a couple of years to plant a church and to send people out. This is part of our goal. And as we've thought about campaigning and raising money, I have heard from a number of experts and sources that if you're going to do this, you need to do a sermon series on giving and money. And I've been very reluctant to do that. Now, Jesus talks about money a lot. And if we're going to teach the full counsel of the word of God, we as ministers and as a church, we need to teach about money from time to time because Jesus does, and our heart's tied up with where we give, right? So for, sake of, for the sake of discipleship and growing people up, we should teach about money from time to time. But I'm hesitant to do that for this purpose, to raise money, uh, I would love to teach about money for the purpose of discipleship. I'm hesitant about inspiring people to give. One, because I actually think it's not the most effective way to inspire people to give. The most effective, uh, effective and effective way to inspire people to give generously is not necessarily to talk about money, but to talk about the God behind money, to talk about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because I believe if a people is infected with the gospel of Jesus Christ, they will have to be sacrificially generous as an outflow of their understanding of the gospel. If you know 
what the gospel is, you will be a generous person. If you understand that the God above gave up that which he valued most, his one and only son, and gave him freely to his people as a sacrifice for sins, if you understand that, that God withheld nothing from you, then you cannot help but be generous in return and give all that you have for the sake of others. If you understand that Jesus gave up his own life for us and was sacrificed for our sins so that we might have life in him, if you understand that gospel, you can't help but be generous. And if you understand the resurrection, which the apostles preached here, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that he has ascended, that he reigns over all, that all the world is in his hands, he is king, and that he will make all things right, and you will have eternal life in him, in his kingdom forever, then why would you hold on to the things of this world? So I think if you understand the gospel of Jesus Christ and understand who Jesus is, you will by a necessity be a generous person. Why would you hold on to the things of this world? How could you not respond in sacrificial generosity if you know who Jesus is? The church preached Christ and the resurrection. And it was natural that the church then would be generous and sacrificial and take care of any need that popped up around them. And that's what was going on. When there was a need, it was met because people who had homes, land, sold them and gave the proceeds. I heard of an example of this kind of thing just this last week. One of our Mennonite churches in Ukraine, a pastor there, sold his home recently and was planning to buy another on the day the bomb started dropping. Instead, he vacated, left $50,000 behind for use for people for basic necessities. The proceeds of his home sale went to ministering to the needy right then and there. That's happening just within the last few days. That kind of thing was happening in the church here in Acts. Now again, I'll mention that Luke writes almost hyperbolically, because if you read this, it almost sounds like anybody who had a home or property sold it and then gave all the proceeds. I don't think that's exactly what was going on. We'll see later in Acts, Paul himself will go to home-to-home persecuting people before his conversion, but Acts 8.3 says he went home-to-home. So apparently some Christians still had homes. Not all of them sold them. In Acts 12, they'll visit Mary, the mother of John Mark, in her home. So it wasn't that all the Christians became homeless. You can see how that would be tricky, because then all would be needy, and then how would they meet those needs? So that's not, like, logically that doesn't make sense. And then we see in Acts later, people still had homes, but the point is, a lot of people, who maybe who had extra property, were, or decided to give theirs up, but a lot of people gave up and sold homes, land, and then gave all of the proceeds over to the church. And they came and laid it at the apostles' feet for them to distribute. Now, we don't do that that way here. Right? I would be very uncomfortable with that. We don't come up and you know, lay money at the front here, and then the elders just kind of do what they want with it. That's not how it works. We used to pass the plate. We don't do that any longer. There are boxes there in the back for giving and generosity and that kind of thing. But the point was they laid their wealth down for the sake of others. And when they did that, 
they weren't just laying wealth down. They were also laying status down. There's a much smaller land-owning, home-owning, middle class in that time compared to the days we live in. To own property, to own land, was a symbol of standing, status in the community. To give that up for the sake of others was an act of humility. To give up a little bit of your weight, your power, your status in the community. One such person who did give that up was Barnabas. We're introduced to him. He's going to pop up later in Acts. You know Barnabas as the one who traveled with Paul. Luke introduces him here as one of those who gave up land and sold it and gave all the proceeds to the church. Verse 36 tells us about him. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Luke introduces Barnabas here. He's one of those people, like many in the New Testament, who goes by two names, like Simon Peter, Saul, Paul, um, other disciples. He has his more common name, Joseph, but then his other name, Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. And there's some um, debate. Whether it could be that that means son of a prophet, Barnabas, but probably the name means son of encouragement, specifically a verbal encouragement, somebody who gave encouraging words, who spoke encouragement to the others. That's what Barnabas was like. He was a person who encouraged others. He was a Levite. Uh, at this time, a lot of the Levites were actually well-educated and homeowners, a number of them. Particularly the Levite clan, a number were well-off, and Barnabas was one of those people. He sold a property. We don't know if this property was back in his native land of Cyprus or whether it was here in Jerusalem. But regardless, he sold it and gave all the proceeds to the church, encouraging others. Barnabas is an example of sacrificial generosity. He's there as a model for us an encouragement to be like him. So we have to ask, how can we be like Barnabas? We may not have extra land or property or homes to sell, but how can we be like him? How can we be an encouragement to others, an encouragement to the church? Somebody asked this week, how do I go about determining how much to give? And I honestly didn't have a great answer. Fortunately, actually, you'll receive a letter from the church soon just walking through. Here's ways to think through how to determine how to give. So we'll give you some practical help with that. But the first thing I would ask if you're trying to think through, how do I give and how to be sacrificial in my giving? I get starts spiritually. And it starts with asking the question of where are finances, my possessions, where do they have a hold on me? More important than determining a number, I think, is praying to God to help you with your own heart. Where is money an idol for me? Where is wealth, my possessions? Where do they have a hold on me that I need to give up? 
they're asking how much to give, I would say, how much do you need to give to be more like Christ? How do you need to grow in Christ-likeness? Where is God asking you, where are you convicted, that you need to grow in generosity? Especially with what's coming up in the next section, we want to be, uh, let's be free to admit that finances can have a hold on us. I know we're all generous Christians here. But let's admit, there are times where we worry and stress about our money. And there are times where we get really protective about what's ours. And there are times where we get greedy about what we have. All of us are in that camp from time to time. We can be free to confess that. So for all of us, this is a great opportunity to think through and to pray through, where is the Lord calling me to let go a little bit? I'm not even saying you have to give it to the church. This isn't a call necessarily to give to the church. There are all sorts of ways we can give to one another, to other charities, all sorts of things. It is about really your own heart before the Lord. Where is God working on you to be more like Christ to be sanctified in the priorities of your heart. Read through the Gospels, read through the teaching of Jesus. He does have quite a bit to say about not letting your wealth take hold of you. And the practice of giving is a sanctifying practice that frees you up from that hold on your heart. To learn how to trust that God will take care of you. I'm not calling you to be stupid. I'm not calling you to be foolish or unwise with your finances. I'm calling all of us, myself included, to go to the Lord and ask, do I need work in my own heart and soul in this? We are called to be the kind of church that gives to one another. And I think we do well. I see it all the time. So there's admonishment here, but here's encouragement. I think the church, this church, does this exceedingly well. I said it a few weeks ago, and I'll say it again. If you are part of this church, it would be impossible to go hungry. I'm thankful for how the church takes care of one another. That is a reflection of Christ-like generosity. It's how the church is unified and held together through Christ-centered sacrifice. Here's the other way from this section of verses and how the church is held together. Verses 1 through 11, we find that the church is held together, the church is preserved by God's fearful discipline. The church is preserved by God's fearful discipline. Just as the church is held together by generosity, the people of the church is also held together by the discipline of God. The generosity and sacrifice builds up, and then the discipline of God preserves the church. The church is preserved by God's fearful discipline. 
Here we see the opposite of Barnabas in Ananias and Sapphira. Barnabas, the selfish one, laid down his status at the apostles' feet. What we'll see is Ananias and Sapphira went to the apostles' feet to build up their reputation. They're doing two different things. Ananias and Sapphira were trying to make much of themselves through their giving. We'll see what, how they did that, starting in verse 1, chapter 5. But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. According to legend, a Christian once told his pastor, he said, I'm leaving the church, I'm going to look for another, and the pastor asked why, and he said, I'm wanting to find a perfect church. And the pastor, Charles Spurgeon, told him, when you find the perfect church, please don't join us, join it, because you'll ruin it. We know there is no such thing as a perfect church, and this is a reminder of that. So we, we look at chapter 4 and in chapter 2 and these early church uh, uh, verses about the church, and we think, what a perfect church. we got to get to be like the church in Acts, where everything was perfect. You know, I hear that all the time. We need to be more like the early church. I'm like, the, the one in Corinth? <laughs> that church? One where sexual morality was rampant? Like, which version of the early church? You know, which rose-colored uh, goggles do you have on here? We see here that the church wasn't perfect. There was, in fact, kind of an initial threat to the church. And the threat to the church did not come from outside. There were outside threats. We read about those persecution. We'll read about more. But there's also an internal threat to the church. And this is just as important, maybe even more deadly, than the external threats to the church are the internal threats to the church, the sin that pops up within. So I think if we pulled a lot of Christians and asked, what's the biggest threat to the church today? We'd have a lot of answers, and we'd have a lot of, well, you know, Social agendas that are contrary to Scripture, that's the biggest threat to the church. Or a liberal government, that's the biggest threat to the church. Or um, a, a world that's just corrupt and fallen from God, that's the biggest threat to the church. And, and that's why you know, the church is really threatened, why the church is struggling. And we looked at Acts here, and then actually the New Testament, we find actually the biggest threat to the church is you. The biggest threat to the church is me. The biggest threat to the church is sin and wickedness, and corruption within. And God is going to deal with it, and that's what happens in this passage. God knows that lack of holiness and corruption are great threats to the church, especially the church that is growing. So the story is included to remind us to be humble and to fear God, to not let our sin become a danger to the church, because that's what was happening here. This account is about Ananias and Sapphira, a husband and wife, and they had sold a piece of property, as everybody else was doing at the time, and they went and laid the proceeds from that sale before the apostles, as was the custom. Only they kept some of their sale back for themselves. Now, here's a question. 
What was their sin exactly? Where was the corruption or the sin in their action? We'll read it again, a couple of these verses. Pay attention to what Peter asks. This is a great example of just because somebody asks you a question, it doesn't mean they don't know the answer. Right? We do this with our kids all the time. We ask questions we know the answer to, but we want to see what their answer is. Don't assume just because somebody's asking you a question, they don't already know the answer. Peter knows the answer, but he's asking questions, probing Ananias. Verse 3, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. Do you see what Peter is saying there? That property you had, when it was yours, you could have done what you wanted with it. So, so nobody was under compulsion to sell homes or to sell property. Nobody was forced to. It wasn't a rule in the church that you had to. You were free to keep it. It was yours. You could have done what you wanted with it. And then Peter says, after you sold it, all of the proceeds of it, they were free for you to disperse how you want. They were at your disposal. So there wasn't a rule necessarily that you had to give everything that you made off of a sale to the church. So where was the sin in what they did? Peter says, you lied. You lied about your gift. You lied not only to men, but you lied to God. What Ananias and Sapphira had done is they sold, made a certain amount, gave part of it, to the church and said, this was the full sale. We're giving everything away to the church. When in reality, they weren't. They were lying about what they gave to make it seem like they were being more generous than they actually were. It was a lie motivated by pride. It was a desire to seem more holy, more generous, more Christian, more sanctified than they actually were. I gave everything. Performative religion. Doing this for show. And we have all been guilty of the same. You ever find yourself in a conversation, somebody asks you if you read a book, and you say, yeah, I read that. And then you think to yourself, why did I just say that? I have not read that book. Yeah, I've heard of that author. Oh, yeah, I saw that. Do you know why? Because in your heart, you want to seem smarter than you actually are. And you're actually afraid of other people's judgment of you. So instinctually at times you say, oh, yeah, yeah, I've read that. I'm well read. And we do this kind of stuff all the time in the church, spiritually. Oh, yeah, I read my Bible every day this week. Great devotional times. What did you read? Don't worry about that. Spend all sorts of time in prayer, too. I I gave the charities. We we do this kind of stuff all the time. Trying to make ourselves spiritually more holy than we actually are. Or the reverse, we deny what we've actually done. Failing to confess. I didn't watch that. I didn't drink that. I didn't do that. I didn't think that. I can't admit what I've done because I need to maintain that I'm a really good person. It's performative religion. 
not done for the worship of God, but for yourself. The Lord despises it because that kind of performative religion is a denial of the gospel. The gospel tells us we are all sinful people desperately in need of a Savior. The gospel tells us we have our righteousness, our holiness, our standing before God. We have acceptance with Him as a gift given. Not by anything we've done or anything we earn. It's a gift of God. You could have full righteousness and holiness in Him. But then we, in performative religion, say, well, I've got to earn my acceptance and earn my standing, not before God, but before other people, and prove to them that I'm better than I actually am, not confessing, not admitting that I'm desperately in need of a Savior. It is contrary to the whole gospel, this one to look better than you are. It comes, actually, from demonic origins, that performative religion. It's what happens here. Peter says, Satan has filled your heart. When you read of spiritual filling in Acts, normally it's the Holy Spirit filling people. Here it's just the opposite. Satan has filled your heart. Satan has made an attack on the church. This doesn't mean that Ananias wasn't responsible. We'll see clearly he's responsible, and the Lord will hold him accountable. So Ananias can't say, the devil made me do it. But we also have to recognize that the devil is at work. Satan is at work here. And we can expect no less when the church is growing or trying to grow. This early on in the church, things are happening. It's exciting. People are coming to know the Lord. And right along with it, Satan is attacking and trying to corrupt the church from the inside. This is a good lesson for us. We should anticipate that in the midst of church growth or a church trying to grow, you have to anticipate, you have to expect that there will be spiritual war along the way. The devil will not sit idly by, but that there will be, this might sound weird to you, but demonic influence. This is why we're having a month of prayer as we go into this. It's not just because we're Christians and we just token, we like prayer and we say prayer is good. No, we're doing this because prayer is actually necessary for growth. Prayer is necessary because we're in the midst of spiritual battle. Because you or I could derail this thing by our own actions, by our own sin, and by the devil getting a foothold in any of our lives. That's why prayer is essential for us, so that we don't corrupt what God is doing in the church. We need the Lord's protection and preservation. And the Lord will preserve his church as we find here. And praise the Lord, he's sovereign over his church. God responds, and what happens? And Ananias breathes his last and drops dead. To put it very bluntly, God kills Ananias. God has done this before. Can you remember where else he's done similar things to this? A couple sons of Aaron... Nadab and Abihu, the Israelites were given proper ways of worship and they did it differently, offering up what the text calls strange fire, weren't worshiping according to the way God had prescribed. 
fire comes out and kills and consumes Nadab and Abihu as a judgment, God reminding his people, I demand holiness. Or Uzzah, the one who touched the Ark of the Covenant as it was falling and he was struck dead immediately, profaning the holy thing of God. There are a couple times throughout Scripture where God directly kills people who are part of his people as a reminder to his people, I am a holy God and a consuming fire. You might ask yourself, like, why this sin? It seems like such a small sin. In fact, many of us have been guilty of the same kinds of sin over and over again, lying to make ourselves look better. Why here and now? I don't know if I can answer that fully, but it seems to me that there's just an example made as the church is starting out, the new covenant's inaugurated, church is growing, and God gives a reminder, a little bit of discipline to his church. I'm still the God who is a consuming fire. And you are still commanded to be a holy people. We tend to think of the God of the Old Testament as the God of wrath, the God of the New Testament, the God of grace. No, it's the same God all the way through. Grace all throughout both covenants. And holiness all throughout both covenants. And God will discipline the people he loves. Hebrews 12 tells us this. If the Father loves his kids, he'll discipline them. And if God loves his children, loves his church, he'll discipline them. This is a moment of discipline. And it might seem harsh, but chemotherapy is also harsh. But it's a harsh form of love because cancer is worse. And here this discipline is harsh, but what's worse is a whole church corrupted by sin. God ensures that this kind of thing won't spread. And we'll see that he intentionally elicits fear from the church. That'll become clear. First, the church responds by taking out the man and burying him. Uh, Those who were on usher duty this day had a great task. Young men come, take the body out. It was normal, customary, to bury a body on the same day of death. It was not normal or customary uh, to not notify the family first or have the family be involved. So you get the sense there that they are hurrying, that there is to be a swift removal of call it the uncleanness, the sin, the stain from the church. And then Luke tells us they were afraid, and that fear is heightened in the next scene, because what just happened is going to happen again. Verse 7, fear will be heightened. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard 
of these things. So here we have basically the scene repeated. Sapphira, the wife, comes in says, Ananias is not home for dinner, and that's strange. I should go figure out what has happened. So she goes and looks around. She goes to the church. Where did Ananias go? Then Peter gives her a test and questions. Did you sell the land for this much? Oh, yeah, that was the whole bit. Maintains the lie. So Peter says, how is it that you've agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? If that phrase sounds familiar, testing the Lord, why are you testing the Lord? That's very a mosaic phrase. Moses said this often to the Israelites in the wilderness. Why do you put the Lord to the test? What does that mean? To put the Lord to the test. We as people are actually really good at this sort of thing. Basically, in all social groups, there will be tests. People will try and figure out, what can I do and get away with here? Athletes do that in sports. They will try to test the limits of the rules to get an advantage, however way they can. Can I start a little bit earlier? Can I cheat the rules just a tiny bit? Get away with a few offenses. What is the ref going to call today? And if you're a good athlete, you're going to figure out where that line is and brush up against it for a competitive advantage. Kids are geniuses at this. It is hardwired in us. What will mom and dad allow us to get away with? And we're going to do that. And we're going to push up against the boundaries, see if we can move them, and figure out what we can get away with. And they will do that at church, they'll do that in your home. So your job as parents is to establish boundaries. What is acceptable and what isn't. Because your kids are going to push them. Because they're sinners. Like all of us. Because this happens in the church too. What can I get away with here? What's acceptable in this community? How much can I gossip and nobody say anything? How much can I just miss church forever? How much can I fight with others before anybody slaps my hand? All of us do this kind of thing. What's acceptable here in this community? And Peter says, you're doing this before the Lord. You're testing him to see how much you can get away with before he's going to respond. Provoking his anger, testing his patience. Peter says, why are you doing this? It's a warning and maybe a judgment at this point. Why do you test what the Lord will allow? And she drops dead just as her husband did. They carry her body off. And those guys probably just got in, think, okay, day is done, and then, oh. Maybe gravestone said Ananias and Sapphire together to the end. But the result is a church in fear, which is exactly what God intended. Fear at times is a bad thing. There are other places in Scripture which will call us not to live in fear. We're not supposed to fear the world, fear man. We don't live in fear. And even before God, there's a sense in which we should not have fear. 
which Hebrews talks about being able to enter the throne of God's grace with full confidence and assurance, not in fear, but as children who are accepted by their father. And at the same time, again, Hebrews also says, don't forget God's a consuming fire. So there is a healthy, holy dread that the church ought to have before God. A fear of his holiness and his power and his sovereignty, knowing that he is God and we are not. Paul even says when he's talking about disciplining elders who wander, who persist in unrepentant sin, and Paul says in 1 Timothy 5.20, rebuke them, not just privately, he's clear, rebuke unrepentant elders, rebuke them before the whole church. Why? Don't do it privately, in front of everybody, because so that the rest may learn to fear and stand in fear. The purpose of that discipline is so that a church would fear God's holiness. Fear is a healthy thing. That's why we tell our kids, the street in front of our house is busy. Fear it. That fear will keep you alive. If you don't fear it, that'll be a problem. We as a church are to have a healthy fear of sin and corruption, a healthy fear of God and his discipline, so that we may not be corrupted. Fear is a healthy response to an awesome, holy God. And it's how the church is held together. It's why discipline occurs. To maintain holiness in the church. A church that is not disciplined will eventually cease to be a church as sin corrupts and spreads. When Satan attacks spiritually, when sin threatens, when the church grows and more and more needs are presented to themselves, presenting, how is the church held together? Two sides of a coin, generosity and judgment, grace and discipline. The church is unified in Christ-centered sacrifice, and the church is preserved by God's fearful discipline. Would you pray with me? Father, we come before you and we ask for two things based on this text, and two very simple things, things only you can do in us. Lord, I pray that you would make us a generous, sacrificial people who are not in love with the things of this world, but in love with one another and in love with you, serving one another um, with great generosity. And Lord, I also pray that you would make us a fearful people, confident of your love for us, but also uh, acknowledging that you are a holy God who judges sin, so that we want to stay away from sin that corrupts others and actually undercuts love and generosity in our community. Lord, make us a, a well-disciplined church with a reverent and holy fear of you. And Lord, preserve us by your grace. Make us united. 
Hold us together by your Spirit in your Son for your glory. Amen.